Canto 27 of The Paradise opens with heaven itself singing glory be to the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Dante says he became inebriated on the joy and the ecstasy, the light and the vitality, which is now seamlessly, unimpededly flowing through him. I think he has recognised in his encounter with Adam something crucial about his own humanity in its Aboriginal state, created by God, for God, with God, within. And as he now feels that, he sees the heavens showing it at the same time, and so feels that inebriation. It's very interesting, he says he was drunk on it, because it's so much within him as without him, and so leads to this tremendous outburst of ecstasy at the beginning of the canto. He says that he realised now of a wealth that knows no scarcity. Remember this old Boethian insight that true wealth actually is based on abundance. There's always more for us to enjoy. And similarly with glory and with fame, because we know of these things, as Dante does in this moment, as without us, as much as within us, but able to move seamlessly within us as well as without us. Um, Dante has reached that moment where he both knows himself fully as a human individual, but I think particularly through his encounter with Adam, knows that that is what humanity in itself is invited to enjoy, this heavenly richness. That is what we're made for, as Adam was made for. And maybe even you can say Dante knows himself to be in the same division, you might say, as the second Adams. Christ is sometimes called the second Adam, and he knows that he has been through the depths of hell, risen up the mountain of purgatory, knows the vision of the incarnation, and so in some ways is able to experience this joy even more completely than Adam was in the Garden of Eden before the fall, although I'm sure Adam now knows this too, as he's alongside Dante in this high eighth heaven. But it does not stop there, even with this fullness. Fullness always makes for more fullness in paradise. And what Dante notices is that Peter, one of the four lights in front of him, starts to glow more brightly and stand out against the background. Peter has got something more to share with Dante. Now I think that Dante is capable of receiving more. And what Peter does in the first instance is the colour of his light changes. It changes from white to red. And Peter describes it in a particular way. He says, don't be amazed at the colour changing. I'm as like Jupiter's bird changing its foliage for a Martian bird. Sounds a slightly strange way of putting it, until you remember that Jupiter's bird was the eagle, and the eagle is the creature that could see into the mind of God, and the creature also that stood for divine justice, meant as this harmonious, glorious ordering 
of all things, which is what Dante himself has just been enjoying in this outburst of ecstasy. And Peter now is saying that that white Jupiter bird is going to become a red Martian bird because what Dante has realised in the sphere of Mars, that is precisely by letting go of himself that he discovers more than himself. You remember this spiritual take on Mars that isn't about self-sacrifice on the battlefield, but is about self-sacrifice in the spiritual domain in order to become open to more life, to give your life in order to receive more life, not to ultimately lose your life. Well, Peter is pointing this out to Dante in this moment by moving from the Jupiter white bird to the Martian red bird. And he's doing so to point out to Dante what the church on earth hasn't managed to do, which he has in this moment of glorious ecstasy. Because the church, Peter points out now in a long, extended, powerful, wholehearted invective against the church, is it hasn't managed to sacrifice its own life in order to receive divine life. It's become too focused on its own vitality, its own concerns, its own glory, its own fame, its own wealth, with the effect of blocking out the divine glory, the divine fame, the divine wealth. And it can hardly be stressed too much how strongly Peter, the first pope, puts this. He says that all the early popes who shed their blood in order to receive the divine life, as is the Martian way, that blood is now being drunk by the popes of the medieval church. And they're cannibalising their own spirit in order to sustain their own tiny self contained, corrupt, degenerate ways. I mean, I'm putting it strongly only because Peter in the highest heavens puts it so strongly. It's initially aimed at the Pope on the throne in Dante's own time, Boniface VIII, who we've of course met before and is anticipated in the hell. Um, but it's quite clear that this is extending to many other Popes, and I think to the institution of the church itself, um, I think that this can be read as Dante really seeing that the church had become so corrupt that he couldn't see a way back for it. Um, he is, I think, speaking and seeing in heaven now of the need for a new Christianity beyond Christianity. And the canto, I think, is going to pick this theme up and develop it in a fascinating way. Now I should say that this canto is hugely debated. It was right from the time it appeared 700 years ago and commentators do differ quite substantially on what Dante is implying here. But I think that a clue comes in a question which Peter puts. When Peter cries out to God and says, oh heavenly God, why do you hold back? Why do you not intervene to do something about this terrible state of affairs? And it's a very remarkable call for Peter in heaven to make of God. He knows the mind of God. He sees into the divine wisdom and intelligence. That's what it is to be in heaven. And yet still 
He's crying out to God and asking God why God doesn't do something about it. Now, this question, I think, prompts us to the issue of interpreting Dante and again resorting to this fourfold interpretation of the literal level, the allegorical level, the tropological level and the anagogic. And so this question of Peter's can be understood in these four ways, literally as Peter the human, the mortal, um, the son of Adam, the second Adam too, crying out from um, his heartfelt um, distress and anger at what's happened with the church on earth. That's the literal level. Then there's the moral level, which is to cry to God, why don't you do something about it? Can't you change this situation? Can't you, in a way, maybe do what you did before and appear incarnate and redeem things so bad have they got? And that's the moral level. But then there's this tropological level, because of course God isn't doing that. Um, that's why Peter's crying out. And it makes us think more deeply about what it might take, in fact, to change things on earth. Not just to cry out as children, but to cry out as co-creators, co-workers with the divine, which is what Dante is feeling, is feeling so powerfully um, in his fullness in the divine heaven. And Peter hints at two ways that that might happen as his speech draws to an end. First of all, he talks about a more secular solution. He talks about a great leader who might appear in order to bring order back to things on earth again. Um, it's striking that it's a secular leader he envisages. Um, he talks about um, Scipio defeating Hannibal, um, the great defeat that brought Rome to power. Um, but even there, there's a kind of condemnation of the church based in Rome. Um, it's kind of saying that the secular Romans did better than the Christian Romans in terms of bringing order to earth. And um, the Pax Romana, um, the rule of Augustus, which of course um, Peter in his mortal life would have known, um, that's doing a better job of it than the medieval church. So there's a sting in that invocation of Peter's still. But then there's, I think, the beginnings of the anagogic site, because what Peter then does is turn to Dante and address Dante directly and say, you whose mortal weight, whose living body, even here in the high heavens, will take you back to earth. You must not hold back from what you have seen. You must speak the words that I have spoken for all the risk, for all the unacceptability that they will sound in Dante's time when he gets back to earth. So Peter is telling Dante that he is a prophet of all this, that he must speak it out. And of course, the prophet is also the herald, the bringer of a spirit, a new possibility, a new imagining, which can become the container, the womb, for a new incarnation. And I think that this is what the anagogic interpretation of this Christianity beyond Christianity is all about. It is Dante's sense that he's beginning to really show now in the high heavens here that his divine comedy, as well as other elements in his time, like, for example, the birth of the Franciscan and Dominican movements, like 
the reintroduction of old learning, the Aristotelian ways, even I think the Islamic ways, um, a much more universal appeal um, is what is what Peter is making here um, in Canto 27 that Dante is going to bring back to us in order to encourage us to look beyond what can be the narrow confines of Christianity, but using the heart and true elements of Christianity, particularly the idea of incarnation, to help us imagine life beyond just a Christianity that brings in this universal vision that Dante in the heavens has seen. I mean, it's interesting that Peter references Jupiter at the beginning of his speech, because it's there that Dante shockingly but explicitly saw the universal salvation that Christianity beyond Christianity offers when he saw both Trajan and then also this minor character, Repheus, on the eyebrow of the bird, on the eyebrow of the eagle, the eyebrow being the point that can see into the divine mind too. It requires a return to the source, a return to the origin of things, a new fresh vision of divine life, which is what Dante is on the cusp of seeing unmediated directly as he ends his time in the eighth heaven here, um, because in this canto too he's going to move to the ninth heaven of the Prima Mobile, um, which is the cusp of leaving the earthly cosmos um, completely, the visible cosmos completely, and moving into um, the Imperium, the place where God reigns unmediated fully um, and without any blockage of sight. That return to the source, return to the origin, is very much part of Dante's journey too. It's the culmination of Dante's journey too. And um, it's intimated that that is the direction of travel here, because what Dante sees next, when Peter has given his prophecy that Dante's vision is going to be a prophetic unfolding of something new beyond Christianity, um, given that my interpretation there is right, what Dante sees next is that the lights and flames and souls that have been around them in the eighth heaven start to move upwards. They're returning to the Imperium. But what's interesting is Dante now describes them as falling downwards. He says that they're like snowflakes falling out of the sky. And the significance of that is that his centre of gravity has switched. He is now no longer thinking of the heart of all things as being focused on the earth. He has realised and sees, knows in his being, in his desire, in his joy, in his intelligence, in his sight, that the heart of all things lies in God. And so he sees these souls here now falling back to their natural place, which is beside the divine. And he, he says that he, he watched them fall as he's looking up in this paradoxical way um, for as long as he could see them until they disappeared from his sight. He himself is not quite there yet. There's still further to go. And Beatrice speaks next and says to him, lower your sight um, and look back down from whence you've come once more. Now remember that Dante has already looked back down through the planetary spheres to Earth before. And in that moment, his look back was to bring the aspects of his personal change into himself so that he could see how his mind and perception had so enormously expanded as he's risen up through the planetary heavens. 
Um, that was the gathering into himself, which was prior to his then meeting with Adam and feeling the primordial humanity within himself. Well, now I think the look down has a different purpose because what Dante sees immediately is that he's not worried about Earth anymore. Um, he calls it the threshing ground. He describes how small and tiny it feels. But very quickly, he looks back towards Beatrice, who is the focus for his longing and desire, for his love and for his hopes. And of course, she stands for the divine wisdom, the divine love, and the divine incarnation that's most immediate to him and that can draw him now to his new centre. Or at least he's become aligned enough with the heavens as opposed to the earth, in order to move to the next sphere of the Prima Mobile, which is where they find themselves next. He's now capable of being there, and so he is there. And Beatrice speaks and explains to him where they are now. They are in the place. They are in the place that receives the movement of God from the highest Imperium, and transmits it into the lower heavens and then back down onto earth. So it's the swiftest moving sphere because it's the one that imparts all that energy and light and vitality. But it's also one that's connected to ultimately the still point, which is the divine centre of all things and is the unmoved mover of all things. So it's both a receiver and a transmitter of this circularity. And Beatrice explains that to Dante now. And it's led to a lot of fascinating speculation about the geometry that Dante is conceiving in his mind and how a still centre can transmit to a circular speeding movement that, that can then um, itself transmit into um, a descending order of spheres that move more and more slowly, of course, down to um, the depths of the inferno where there's so little movement um, that any less movement would mean everything just fell out of being altogether. Um, it's sometimes called a kind of hypersphere. Um, I think of it a bit more simply as sort of two cones um, put end to end um, and the topmost point um, of the higher cone is the divine centre that falls out through the imperium, uh, the flat base of that circular cone would be the prima mobile where Dante and Beatrice are now and that connects with the highest heavens in the visible cosmos um, that move down um, to the bottom point of the second cone pointing down underneath which is the depth of the inferno where again movement hardly obtains at all but this time not because it's the source of all life and being but because it's the point at which all life and being would just fall away entirely. That is the point that Dante has reached now and Beatrice is explaining to him. Beatrice then herself launches into a sort of lament for the greed on earth that spoils all the childhood aboriginal innocence and desire for goodness um, that I think the image of the child is used here because much as the child reaches out beyond itself to receive the good things of earth, so human beings must reach out beyond themselves to re receive all the good things of the heavens. And yet that gets spoilt 
um, as um, the beard grows on the face, um, as the sun um, increases the years, as the child moves into adulthood and seems to lose that ability to reach out beyond itself and in turn instead turns in on itself um, looking for the good things of life. And Beatrice expresses that lament here again now, um, echoing St Peter, um, but she adds to Dante that he shouldn't be surprised at this. Um, this is the way of things that he now knows and has seen in his journey to this point, which enables him to have not just the allegorical angry reaching out or the tropological turning within himself, but the anagogic perspective of just seeing it as it is and knowing that something radically different and new is required now. And that's how Beatrice's speech ends, because she points out to Dante that human beings don't know how to connect to the heavens. Um, she does it in an interesting way by pointing out to Dante that the medieval calendar couldn't keep up with the heavens. And this is the great problem of how you adjust um, the days over the year. Um, so that they keep up with the turns of the spheres. Um, it's very hard to do when you're doing it in linear time, um, hence the many different calendars that nowadays give us these leap years every four years and even leap seconds every century or so to readjust. Um, well, Dan uh, Beatrice uses this problem to illustrate to Dante that mortal human beings, in their very appreciation of time, fail to connect with the highest heavens, with the life of God. And so that's just the way it is. Um, she sees that now and speaks of that now to Dante from the Prima Mobile. But she says heaven always has more in store by the very same logic um, and that a new light, a new ray will shine down from heaven, which I think is addressed to Dante once more. Um, that his journey here is not just for his own sake, it's not just about him following his own desire and love, and so um, being able to accompany Beatrice and stay with her as his intelligence and perception becomes capable of what she can see. It's also about him transmitting that back down to earth, bringing a new take on the older Christian truths of incarnation, that have become so corrupted and that new take not being an assertion again of the old but a radically new departure true to the original spirit as well as connected to the divine source which Beatrice says right at the end of the canto will be known by its fruit it will be known by what it brings to blossom always the great test for spiritual innovations and I think right here at the end of the canto, asking us whether we believe it, whether we can see it, whether we can feel the spirit that these radical prophecies seem to be suggesting, if we can sense the need for this reconnection with the divine origin to bring a Christianity beyond Christianity, that in itself is a fruit of Dante's vision, which given that he did come back to earth, he did write the Divine Comedy, he did communicate it to us and speak even as Peter and Beatrice had spoken to him. If we can feel that, 
and all that it kindles and inspires, invokes and transforms is proof of Dante's new vision.